This episode of Space Q is brought to you by MDA. MDA is an internationally recognized leader in space robotics, satellite antennas and subsystems, surveillance and intelligence systems, defense and maritime systems, and geospatial radar imagery. Founded in 1969, MDA is recognized as one of Canada's most successful technology ventures with locations in Richmond, Ottawa, Brampton, Montreal, and Halifax. MDA is a Maxars technology company. For more information, visit mdacorporation.com. Five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. Last week, we began our first semi-annual crowdfunding campaign on Patreon. Thank you. Thank you to those who visited our Patreon page to pledge their support to SpaceQ. We're a long way from reaching our first goals, which include being able to put more freelance writers to work, and hopefully, we'll be able to hire our first full-time journalist. If you don't know, SpaceQ is the only independent Canadian media company reporting on the space sector full-time. We tell the stories that matter. We don't have a paywall. We believe everyone should have access to our reporting. However, it takes time and money to produce quality journalism. So we need your support. Your support to continue to provide daily news and analysis on our website, in our newsletter, and our weekly podcast. I hope you see the value in what we do and support us. Our Patreon address is patreon.com slash spaceq. You can support us starting at as little as $2 a month. And if you support us at the $4 level or higher, you'll get a small reward from us, which could include SpaceQ bookmarks or a SpaceQ mug and even lunch or dinner with me. If you want to make an annual or one-time donation, then please contact me at mark at spaceq.ca as Patreon does not support those types of donations. Okay, now on to our guest. My guest this week is Hassan Khan, CEO of Quantius and TotaQ. From your websites, I understand that Quantius is an alternative lender with a unique capability to collateralize intangible assets for innovative enterprises in Canada and the United States. TotaQ Financial is a mobile financial services marketplace responsible for issuing, distribution, and adoption of the Tota Note, a U.S. dollar-backed digital currency for knowledge-based businesses globally that require transaction efficiency and liquidity for growth. No matter how you describe both companies, it's clear that Hassan is and has been doing some innovative ventures. Before starting these two ventures, Hassan was with McKinsey & Company, a global management consulting firm. And before that, he spent 13 years in the Canadian Armed Forces working in various information technology areas, leaving as a major. Today, Hassan and I will discuss two topics, venture funding and blockchain technology and cryptocurrency. Welcome, Hassan, to the SpaceQ podcast. Thank you, Mark. Delighted to be uh, on the show. And uh, it's great that we're continuing the conversation from when we first met at all the various uh, space events. Very excited to be here. Great. So 
before we actually get into what I said we'd talk about, I'm just going to throw something out at you because it's news. The Canadian budget came out last week, and I was wondering what your thoughts are on it. Um, you know, I, I could answer that uh, a few ways. Um, and I believe that one of the things is that, at least for me uh, personally, uh, as well as both of the businesses um, that I had a hand in starting and now lead, um, space as a sector um, has always been kind of a passion. Uh, and I think it intersects with so many parts of our society, uh, our economy, and our industries um, that while its overall size might be small, uh, it plays a definitely overweighted role uh, in the impact it has with us. So from that, um, I would have wanted to see more uh, in terms of uh, leadership, uh, vision, uh, long-term commitment um, from the government uh, towards the space sector. Um, and while I think the, the private sector is an essential and growing part of you know, how we build space technologies and impact, especially with new space or space 2.0. Uh, it would have been great to uh, see more because um, I think that that um, uh, support uh, from the government is really essential. Uh, if we're going to see Canada lead in space over the next half century uh, and have a lot of wins uh, and grow from what we did, uh, you know, during the 20th century. Okay. So, Thank you for those thoughts. I think on Space Q in the next uh, week or so, we're probably going to follow that up with an article uh, as we gather more uh, uh, input from, from stakeholders across Canada. So before we actually talk about investing in the space sector, tell me a little, about, a little bit about Quantius and, and what separates it from other investment firms. Um, absolutely. And, you know, if I'd always start with the, the why, right? Um, when I left the military uh, and started working consulting around the world uh, in all kinds of tech-enabled sectors uh, as well as in finance, started seeing that we had great small-medium businesses and early-stage ventures that were building innovative solutions uh, in all kinds of spaces, uh, no pun intended. Um, whether we thought about space or medical or advanced industrial applications uh, or clean tech. Um, a lot of these businesses, when they're small and medium-sized, they go through a bit of a valley of death um, as they're trying to grow and become fully self-supporting uh, to the point where the regular banking system uh, can efficiently finance them. Uh, and in those in-between stages, companies like that are always starved for uh, you know, getting the capital in that they need to grow. Uh, and there's an ecosystem that you need to do it. It does take a village. Uh, it starts with you know, everybody bootstrapping uh, and putting their own capital and friends and family and all that in. Uh, angel investors step in uh, to keep the company going. Uh, we've got the, the venture capital uh, and kind of private equity ecosystem. Uh, but the other side of it is that you also need debt uh, because debt is just less expensive than someone who shows up and says, great, we're going to put capital in your business, but we want a hefty chunk of the ownership. Uh, and the lack of well-structured, affordable debt um, for businesses, um, like whether we look at early-stage space ventures, uh, so that you know they can grow but not take on uh, more dilution uh, in their companies, uh, that was both a gap and an opportunity uh, in the marketplace. So that's why uh, Quantius was really built, 
uh, you know, and quite simply, as you mentioned, it's a lender and its aim is we find those small, medium uh, businesses that are typically B2B or focusing on other businesses as customers. Uh, they're in all these knowledge-based kind of sectors. And we look and say, uh, how do we get them more non-dilutive, better structured financing um, so they can actually grow to medium-sized? Uh, so that's a bit of a difference there in how we provide the financing. Um, the other is we're looking for good companies, but we're not necessarily looking for the unicorn uh, like a venture capitalist might. So if you're a creditworthy company and you've got a good story, and it means that in you know uh, throughout your growth, you're not turning into a Facebook, that's fine by us because the way our financing is structured, um, we're not trying to solve for the the planet dominator, so to speak. So we actually first met at the Southern Ontario Defense Association annual conference uh, here in London, Ontario, a couple of years ago. Uh, I, I saw your booth. I thought uh, I thought your company, Quantius, might be a good fit for emerging new space companies in Canada, and you definitely were interested at the time. So tell me, since then, has anything come across uh, your way that you any companies that you've invested in the aerospace sector? So we've looked at a number of companies in the aerospace sector. Um, I believe that over the year or two that we first started digging into both aerospace and space, uh, we've looked at it and confirmed that the opportunity is there, uh, that the need is there, uh, and that we want to do deals in that space. What we found, however, is that the places where we first gone to deal-wise, I would more describe as either medical devices, uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, high-tech uh, software as a service. Um, so our first loans and financing that we did were actually in the spaces that I described. Um, and what we figured, started figuring out was what were some of the barriers that we were seeing that were preventing, as an example, a space or aerospace company from being one of our early deals. Okay, and... I recently uh, had a conversation with a CEO of a uh, space, uh, new space company, uh, and this person told me that uh, most of the Canadian VC landscape is light years behind in understanding the space ecosystem in comparison uh, with their U.S. counterparts. Do you agree with that uh, sentiment? Um, I would largely agree with that sentiment. Uh, and I kind of think about it a few ways, right? Because I believe that Canadian VC typically call themselves VC, but their risk appetite is actually less than their peers uh, in the U.S. Um, so they'll call themselves uh, venture money, um, but they're actually looking for companies that are uh, quite a bit kind of more established uh, in where they are. So the first thing is, I think there's an imbalance in their acceptable risk threshold. The second is the amount of capital that they have at their disposal and are willing to put to a company uh, is also typically less than if you looked kind of south of the border. Um, and the implication of that is that whether you're a space company or anything else, you usually need a lot more capital to successfully grow um, than what you might typically find uh, within the you know kind of Canadian VC space. So those two things are, are some of the reasons why we end up with either a, a brain drain uh, or a company drain, uh, where space companies, an example, will look and say, fine, 
we are going to set up shop down in the valley or we're going to go to the UK or somewhere else. Um, and, you know, you can't blame them for it because um, as entrepreneurs and as, as a founding team, um, they've got to go into an environment and ecosystem uh, that can really support them all the way through their growth. So you mentioned one example uh, of a barrier. Uh, are there any other barriers in Canada that make investing in space companies less attractive? Yeah, so I think we talked in terms of the need for the government to have a long-term vision uh, and make a commitment where, you know, as Canada, we're not a huge nation. We can't be all things to all people in space. But even if we pick something and said, we are going to be really good at this um, globally and become globally known for it and kind of place the bets, you know, it requires that kind of decision making. And it means that certain other things won't get picked. Um, but it'll put us further ahead. That was one. The second was kind of what I was talking about, you know, kind of on the VC side. Um, and then I think the third also has to do with, you know, what kind of an ecosystem do you have? Um, you know, recently, you know, if we look at what happened with MDA uh, and, you know, kind of some other companies in that you need sort of not just your early stage startups, uh, you also need the medium-sized and more established companies around that so that you, you've got a, a functioning space ecosystem in that. If those companies start going, um, that also makes it a lot tougher uh, for the, uh, the smaller startups uh, in order to you know, grow to scale. So here's a, here's a question for you. Um, I wonder, I mean, you know, it, it's pretty obvious... Uh, over the course of the last, oh, 12 years or so, that the, the Canadian government doesn't see space as a priority. This current budget uh, uh, doesn't really look at space as a, bio, uh, as a priority, although it does have, uh, you know, lots of funding for basic science. If, if you're a new, you want to start a new space company in, in Canada, should you be worried or, 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 or should you be going, you know what, there are some programs to get some funding from the government if I need it. Uh, I can make of it, make a go of it commercially, really without the government. Do you think that are we at that point where companies really can say, "Yeah, we really don't need the government. I can just go go on on my own uh, as a new space company." Um, I think that would be difficult, um, and I'll make a few assumptions here, uh, and certainly. There's a lot of brains and experience within the space, so you know there's always going to be exceptions around what I'm saying. But it's difficult because if we think about new space and all the things around it in terms of saying, you know, should Canada develop a depth uh, in launch uh, technology uh, and creating those kind of platforms, uh, reusable or not, right? Uh, how do we think about the you know the constellation and sensor on that side of things? Uh, or if we look at the analytics and the AI and the software as a service kind of business models in order to deliver insights back to industry or government, right, that we can monetize. Uh, along all of that, especially when companies are in the early stage, you need capital for R&D, uh, you know, grants, uh, you know, sort of uh, tax breaks, all these other things that kind of come in. Uh, to help a company keep going along. So I think especially in the beginning, the support that government can provide um, is, is really impactful. 
um, and it allows the you know the private sector to also come in alongside uh, and have a shared public and private you know sort of investment in order to push uh, an industry along. Uh, so my take on it is that, yeah, you'll always be able to find exceptions, uh, and they're there. Uh, companies that have, you know, kind of grown and, and been successful and kind of looked back and said, you know, there was minimal, uh, you know, government support. But particularly in the era of space, I, I just think it's very tough uh, without having that early stage uh, support. The other, only other thing I'd say, which is quite interesting, is that you know, in Canada, we're very good at developing innovation uh, in early stage companies. Um, we're not that great at then taking those and continuing to support the commercialization uh, and global commercialization of that really good innovation that we tend to produce. Um, there was a study done a number of years back by, I think it was the Canadian International uh, Council, and they saw that overall as a nation, uh, we net export um, quite a few billion dollars of intellectual property out of the country, um, which was basically an indicator saying we're producing a bunch of innovation, but the commercialization of those innovations is happening in other markets in other countries. So here's a somebody brought this up to me the other day, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, we have the Canadian Satellite Design Challenge, which has been going on, ongoing for several years and which has been, you know, at universities, I don't know, up 12, 13 universities across the country that have been participating in this. We now have the Canadian uh, CubeSat uh, project, which is about to, to kick off in the next month or so. Uh, and, you know, that's a Canadian Space Agency uh, uh, project uh, that, you know, is trying to get a CubeSat uh uh, built and launched from every province and, and territory. Um, so here's a question for you. Um, we're going. We're, it's obvious that in this area, we're now starting to develop more capability. There already was some capability there. Uh, you know, the the best example of that is the spaceflight laboratory in you know in Toronto. But we're now looking at developing more capability uh, at you know the university level uh, across the country. With this current budget and the way things are going, once these students have graduated from universities and they've learned these skill sets, you know, unless they start up their their own company or they go to an existing company in Canada, uh, there doesn't look like you know in Canada isn't building any more satellites from the you know civil space side of it at this point. Does this mean that we're building this capability yet again? And we're now going to be exporting most of that talent to somewhere else? Yeah, I think that's certainly a risk. Um, and I think it's actually really important. I mean, you raised some good questions as far as, you know, we're, we're, we're producing uh, students, right? And, and a trained workforce that's highly skilled. Um, so what are we giving to them or providing in terms of the ability for them to find or create their own opportunities, right? I mean, here's a, a wild idea. Um, so, you know, this is like if, if you asked yourself or if anyone asked themselves, uh, you know, if I was in charge of Canada, what would I do with space, right? Um, so I will give you my kind of one-minute answer. Uh, so take it for what it's worth, right? As a nation, we've traditionally generated a lot of wealth and had our industries characterized by natural resources, um, wood, commodities, all kinds of other things, 
um, as well as finance. So let's say we took the first and said, hey, we're producing a trained student body. We've got a R&D uh, system. Uh, we've got uh, a set of early stage companies. Why don't we make that entirely relevant to where the majority of our industrial and commercial capability is? So we could take something like New Space and say, we're going to become really, really good in terms of putting things up in space that are looking at and ripping insight out of how we um, do forestry, mining, all of these other things, uh, and looking at those data and analytics, put that value back to those industries so that we can do it in whether it's more sustainable ways, uh, more efficient and profitable ways, uh, et cetera. So then what you've got is looking at where we're putting R&D dollars, academic dollars, where we're growing things. It is things that matter to the rest of Canadian industry, and you start getting some, some teamwork happening right, uh, within the country. And we say, fine, we're going to be really, really good at this. Um, so I don't think that it's too hard to um, you know, sort of combat the risk that you're talking about, because I'd agree it's totally real. You know, we just need uh, you know a bit of vision, you know, kind of from the top and all sides, saying how do we connect the dots here, right? All right. So uh, before we go on, uh, I need to mention our second sponsor, uh, Hassan. Have you read any of Michio Kaku's books? Uh, you know, heard of them, but I I am ashamed to say I have not. All right. Well, Kaku is a theoretical physicist who co-founded string field theory. He also happens to be a great communicator. I checked before we started recording the podcast, and I have four of his books in my library. Penguin Books just published his newest book. Here's what it's about. We're entering a new golden age of space exploration. Moving human civilization to the stars is increasingly becoming a scientific possibility and a necessity. In his new book, The Future of Humanity, world-renowned physicist Dr. Michio Kaku explores developments in technology that may allow us to terraform and build cities on Mars, and even beyond our own solar system as the search for a twin Earth continues. The future of humanity is an exhilarating journey to a future among the stars. Find your copy today, wherever great books are sold. Okay, getting back to where we were, we were talking about... Um, if you're a new space startup, what would you say is the best method for raising funds? Wow. Um, that is a great question <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a really tough one, right? But um, one of the things um, I would mention is that in raising funds, especially for uh, new startups, is that I often find, if I look at it from the, the Qantas lens when we've had companies come to us, they're very science uh, and engineering forward, right? Uh, and I think it's extremely important in the early stages that looking at the group that is there to make sure that the commercial, financial, and capital markets eye and depth uh, is there on the team so that you're actually solving for where is the product market fit for this wonderful mousetrap, whatever it is that we've built, um, so that we know it matters to you know a small or a large portion of the market that they're willing to pay for it uh, and that in whatever we happen to believe is needed in terms of scale or volume or whatever else, uh, it's going to be profitable. So 
when you have teams that one way or another have got a, a group of talent that covers everything from the science to the, the capital and the business end early, um, generally found that, you know, if we kind of look at founding teams um, that are successful, that are the ones that are raising the capital uh, and that are going out and producing some really uh, innovative business models, but also ones that are, are profitable, right? Uh, and it's getting the interest of the market and of investors. Um, they've solved that particular piece uh, at a team level. So that's kind of one of the things that I'd say is very important. Um, when the founding and management teams are, are kind of coming together uh, is to get that end of it solved very, very early. So uh, in the last few years, we, we've seen a, a, a little bit more a trickle, I suppose, uh, of investment in, in uh, space companies in Canada. And, and I'll note that Global Live, based in Toronto, was in, uh, has been active and, in, and, and uh, invested in Earthcast, Kepler Communications, and Skywatch. Uh, do, do you see the, the ecosystem growing where, where companies like Global Live and others are, are, are going to invest in in, in these startups in Canada? Um, yeah, I mean, if I look at Globalize and, you know, I look at their message, which I think is important, right, um, for Canadians, whether it's in the business, government, or, um, you know, the investment space, uh, it's a very much of, you know, how can you win? How can you bat above your weight? Um, and how can you stretch so that both your ambitions and the execution, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're actually going for the fences, uh, which is important. So we, I, I think we need more of that. And it's great to see that we're now starting to see more uh, investment firms and investment groups uh, within Canada that what, whether it's in space or the high tech space are, are taking that approach, right? Uh, and coming with that capital in order to make uh, those investments. Um, so, you know, my, my first reaction to you know, something like a global live is like, okay, fantastic. Um, now, what can we do more to add on to that? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the way um, a new space company, let's say, would, would get off the ground, you know, angel funding, you know, family and friends to, to, to get that initial go, uh, initial step going and then uh, grants or contributions or maybe uh, a contract through the Canadian Space Agency Space Technology Development Program. And then is that, you know, you know, if it gets proven out, then they can go to the to the venture in side of things. And as we've seen, you know, uh, global space, uh, sorry, uh, global live, um, uh, OTR, real ventures, and other ones uh, will then hopefully uh, step in if you're if you're looking for that venture funds. But I, I want to, I, I you know, we you were recently a speaker at the Canadian small sat symposium and you participated in the commercial space 101 workshop. And you also did another talk of which I caught that one, but I didn't catch the full commercial space 101, but I did catch the end of it. And it was quite interesting because you caused a little stir. You basically said that, and I may be getting this wrong, but that to, to really uh, get investment and to really grow, 
uh, and to follow their dreams if they really wanted to get big in the space sector, that they should leave uh, Canada. Have I got that right? And can you put that into context of what yeah, you were absolutely. saying? Yeah, um, absolutely. And I, I kind of answer it two ways. One is from a personal lens looking kind of at our businesses. Uh, and then the second is, you know, in terms of what Canada needs. Like, if we look at um, what I will call, um, you know, knowledge-based kind of companies we have that are global leaders, um, our record has been good but very spotty, right? We produced Nortel uh, that imploded. Then there was BlackBerry. Uh, and now we've got another set of ecosystems that are growing. Right. Uh, and even those that kind of left those things, you know, you ended up with a whole bunch of kind of new creation. But if you look at the size of our economy, we should have many more what I'll call global leaders. So the question is, why aren't they there? And we've talked about, you know, a number of those things that we want to have in place uh, in order to produce more of those companies. Uh, and there's probably other factors as well. So I was simply making the statement that right now, as an example, uh, as a company, if you have a, a value to the market uh, and a disruption and you know, disintermediation potential, uh, and you are, in fact, swinging for the fences, um, very simply, Canada might not be the best place um, where you want to kind of launch and do that growth, right? Uh, and there's all kinds of reasons for that. Uh, if you think about what our industries look like, whether it's in telecom, finance, or a number of others, we do have a set of what I'll call comfortable oligopolies. Uh, and that makes it difficult that if you're in that environment and your intent is to grow and become a giant, uh, you know, sort of to do that within that space. So where the, where the personal part of it comes in, you know, even if I look at the, uh, you know, the second company we're running, uh, we'll have a Canadian office and a bunch of, you know, kind of talent here based in Toronto. Um, but the headquarters of that is moving east. Uh, and we're moving to where our markets, uh, where the capital, uh, where the, a lot of the momentum is. Um, and, you know, the second we end up seeing that the environment becomes more favorable to actually have the, the, the home base be in Canada... Um, be thrilled to do that. Um, I'm a proud Canadian, uh, you know, serve my country and always wanted to find things that we could do to, you know, to give back. But when you've got a business, you've got to make some pragmatic decisions. So, you know, I myself am a, uh, am a subject of, you know, that statement that I made, right? I think that every entrepreneur needs to look at their business and what their individual circumstances uh, and then make decisions that are best for the business, the team, their market, and their investors. Um, but yeah, certainly if, if your ambitions are big, um, I would have pause before I decided to build anything in Canada. It's very interesting you say that. I mean, Canada is one of the largest economies in the world, and for for someone to actually... Uh, be saying that still in this day and age shows that uh, there, there are definitely some problems in the, uh, the Canadian ecosystem. Okay, uh, let's tackle our, our second subject today, which is blockchain technology and cryptocurrency. Uh, many people who aren't familiar with blockchain technology, 
get confused and they perceive that blockchain technology and cryptocurrency are the same thing. How would you briefly describe blockchain technology and cryptocurrency? Um, you know, for me, if I look at blockchain uh, and I look at um, what our overall group and, you know, sort of in that, that for TOTA Q and the TOTA technology of, of what's being created, um, it's really around saying, can you create a system that is decentralized and distributed uh, and provides you um, within that uh, platform uh, an ability to uh, have ownership management of files and data uh, and the ability to uh, transfer that kind of value on due transactions in a way that is more efficient, uh, faster, uh, more scalable, more private, and more secure uh, by an order of magnitude than any of the existing things we're using today, right? So it's directly around whether I'm thinking about it in terms of energy or dollars, um, we can really see where the value is. Uh, and it's really around what is the power of decentralization uh, that is really giving you, you know, resilience uh, and immutability, uh, the power of distribution, which is really giving you that efficiency, uh, and then saying how are you working um, um, auditability, accountability, and the idea of a ledger within that, so everyone can look at whatever that market of information and digital assets is uh, and say, you know what, this is, uh, we trust it. Um, and it actually cannot be, uh, you know, messed around with. And that to me is, you know, the power of blockchain because it has the potential of producing uh, a way of owning as well as transacting um, that is orders of magnitude more efficient than what we do today. Um, the first few generations of what we've seen uh, have not delivered that, but that's okay. Because, you know, even when we started the internet, uh, the 90s had the same thing, right? We had a tech and a bunch of business models that weren't ready for prime time. Uh, there was a bubble popping, uh, but look what happened post-2000. Uh, and now it's in and around and part of everything we do. Uh, if I think about cryptocurrency, that's just one manifestation of blockchain technology. And it's saying that if we've got a store of value or a medium of transaction, uh, we're going to take that thing and put it on whatever blockchain technology we have, uh, and we'll use it as security, uh, as a form of money, or whatever else, uh, in order to allow us to transact. I think the difficulty is that these first generations of cryptocurrency because the underlying blockchains uh, haven't delivered yet on the promise that I'm talking about, the cryptocurrencies themselves don't have wide-scale utility, right? You can't look at a whole bunch of commercial and consumer markets and say, you know, everybody is using uh, cryptocurrencies yet um, because, you know, the, the underlying technology that supports it uh, can't do it in a way where a business or a consumer says it's worthwhile. Um, but that will come. That'll happen. All right. So before we actually get to Tota Q, I've got two questions, and then we'll get into Tota Q. So um, uh, I've been reading uh, Blockchain Revolution by Don Tapscott and Alex Tapscott, and I believe it was in this book that I read where they said that uh, blockchain technology will be as transformative as the Internet has been. Is that a statement you would agree with? I would with? say directionally, yes. 
I would also say that, and now this is just, you know, uh, take it as Hassan's 10 cents. Um, most of the things that we are seeing today uh, and that appeared in the last decade in terms of blockchain technology, um, most of it, no one will remember in 10 years. Uh, and it's never the, sorry. Does that include Bitcoin? Does that include um, Bitcoin? Bitcoin in its current form uh, is unsustainable, uh, given what happens with the dynamics of mining, right? So I believe that Bitcoin has a number of pathways available to it uh, to actually become, um, in terms of performance and potentials, something that can be sustainable. Uh, if it gets there, um, then it'll still be around. Uh, if it doesn't, then that's it. Um, you know, we have difficulty predicting what's going to happen a week from now. Um, so I certainly have a tough time looking at something like Bitcoin and saying, you know, uh, is it going to be there or not in two years or in five years or 10 years? Um, but what I can tell you is that in its current form, uh, it's not sustainable. Uh, and there's changes and there's big changes and improvements needed. All right. We'll get into a little bit more of that a little bit later. And before we get into the toe to queue, one last question, one last general question. Uh, what are some of the current uses for blockchain technology that might be transformative? Um, so, yeah, let's talk about a few things. Um, one is that if you've got a blockchain that on efficiency and scale and privacy and security and all those aspects I talked about, that's actually delivering. Um, one of the huge transformative things is what, uh, what I'll call uh, financial access and democratization. So if we look at our financial system today, um, it's, let's say, banking half the world. Um, and if you look at that financial system, uh, we all pay money so that our transactions can be done and be settled, so they're final. Uh, and that aggregate transaction fee kind of industry for banking half of the planet Let's say it's earning around a trillion dollars a year. Uh, so that is in terms of its overall worth, uh, it's worth tens of trillions, right? And that means that anytime we do a transaction, whether it's with a bank or a credit card or whatever the platform you do, um, you're paying dollars uh, for the privilege of being able to transact. Uh, and that centralized entity uh, is earning a profit. So that transactional friction actually keeps a lot of the unbanked population uh, out of the economy. The one or two dollars or whatever percent that you might pay in an OECD economy, that kind of barrier is one thing that can actually be a liberal red flag um, or deal killer uh, for an individual or a business in an emerging market uh, because it becomes a real barrier to entry. So if you've got efficient blockchain technologies that are put in that can really collapse that cost and those frictional barriers for getting things in. Um, a second example is then looking at issues around uh, leakage, uh, corruption, uh, auditability. So if I look at everything from private sector services like large infrastructure projects, um, city and municipal services, uh, and things like voting, um, what people and societies want and deserve is a system that can, you know, deliver uh, an honest result, right, and not be manipulated with. So the uh, 
the real transformative impact that blockchain can do there that is actually very exciting is that you know that, uh, as an example, let's say there's a big project happening, right? Uh, and there's a large public work that's being created uh, and a whole bunch of capital is put towards it, right? And then it gets swirled around in that little internal ecosystem and there's contractors and builders and consultants and all of that. You can actually track all your dollars and equipment and all of that for far less cost at far greater um, with far greater immutability um, than you would with a regular centralized system, uh, which gives everyone confidence uh, and also tremendously reduces leakage in the system, increases efficiency. Um, so there are a couple of examples of when you see blockchain really start to commercialize uh, on a wide scale of what kind of power it can have. All right, so so let's specifically talk about what you're doing now. So what is TotaQ doing and how is it taking advantage of, of the yeah, for blockchain sure. technology? So, TotaQ at its simplest is everyone's decentralized mobile marketplace um, of everything. Uh, so that's kind of like uh, a lot of stuff into one sentence. Uh, so let's figure out what that means. The TotaQ, um, it's business model is based on a new fourth generation uh, protocol called the TOTA protocol. Uh, and it's actually a layer zero technology or protocol. So it kind of exists at the same level of, you know, TCP IP and HTTP. Um, and it's basically a file ownership management and value transfer protocol. Uh, and it actually deals with ownership management of files and data. Uh, and that fact and the fact of you know what layer it sits like you can you could stick Bitcoin or whatever else you wanted on top of it it's completely decentralized and completely distributed so you could put the whole thing on a million or a billion phones and every phone that's within this network now is using a few percent of its capacity to add to the overall network uh, and to ensure that all transactions um, are valid and that the market is honest. It's like you're creating a, a massively powerful uh, distributed system. So what do we do with that? On top of it, we're just putting a marketplace because the total protocol is so efficient that what you can do with it is that if you have your phone and I was over, um, let's say I spent a bunch of time doing business in Asia uh, and I was in Korea or China and I were to do a transaction with you, You'd have the marketplace on your phone. I'd have my phone. We'd do a peer-to-peer -peer transaction uh, with a number of other devices in the system, making sure our transaction was honest. We'd execute the transaction in seconds. We'd have the thing finally settled in under a minute. And the total cost of doing that would be less than 0.1%. Uh, and that's a capability that we've got running and working now. So we're launching our first commercial pilot markets uh, at the end of April. Um, and that is a, a tremendous impact that you can do. And I think the other thing I'd say is that for TotaQ, that mobile marketplace that I'm talking about, uh, it's not like you've got an app with a wallet on your phone. Uh, you've got an app with an inventory. You can put whatever you want in that inventory. You could put our digital note, which is an asset-backed kind of cryptocurrency. It's called a TOTA note. Uh, you could put a dollar, uh, you could put uh, loyalty points, you could put property rights, uh, anything you want, you can go and stick inside that inventory. 
Um, so what we're really doing is giving and creating a mobile marketplace for people and businesses uh, that allows them to manage all of their digital assets uh, and transact with them in a frictionless way uh, anywhere in the world. Now, if I understand this correctly, it's ledgerless. It doesn't need the miners. Um, so can you explain yeah, how that would sure. work? So let's say we took a, a simple example. And, you know, just for anyone listening, I mean, the whole idea of a global ledger is that every transaction that's ever done has gone and stuck in one big place, right? You've got this massive, you know, kind of audit list. If we just imagine that Canada with 35 million people, you created one global ledger for all the transactions that happen in this country, um, it would very quickly become unworkable. I mean, the thing would grow by petabytes a day. Um, so the question then is, well, what are you solving with a global ledger? What you need is everyone needs to know that the market is absolutely honest, but not everyone needs to see and work on every transaction. So when you create a global ledger, um, for all kinds of uses for everyone to look at, you actually create a bunch of efficiency problems and a bunch of privacy and security problems and cost problems. So in order to create a blockchain that is actually solving for massive efficiency and massive scale, what you do is you got to let go of the ledger. Uh, and that basically removes the challenge of creating a gigantic boat anchor um, that is weighing your entire thing back. So now the question is, well, where does the ledger go? Um, where is kind of the proof and the auditability? And then there's a very simple answer for that. Um, if I have in my Toto inventory, I've got 10 Toto notes, which is our currency, and I decide to send them to you. Those 10 Toto notes are actually 10 unique files that only I own. And every file is unique and cannot be altered uh, or messed around with. Every single file has its own proof or record of ownership. So it says, great, Hassan owns this, and before that it was another node that had it. If I send them to you, within that block everything is finalized, you become the new owner, and that's indicated within each file. So in the TOTA system, every file knows everything about itself and nothing about anyone else. So what you end up seeing now is that within TOTA, if you imagine that you had a billion people transacting with 100 billion notes or files, the ledger is completely distributed within all the files. Whereas in some of the older blockchain systems where you have a global ledger, that's actually not a distributed ledger, it's a replicated ledger because everyone has the same massive copy of all the transactions everywhere. So the, you know, kind of the next layer of the answer, which is quite fascinating, is what TOTA is, is it actually is a distributed ledger. And what I'm saying by implication is that what we talk about with distributed ledger technologies, most of the first generations of these things that have been in use are not distributed ledger technologies, they're replicated ledger technologies. Um, so that's kind of the first piece. And I think you had a second question apart from the, the issue of ledger lists. Right, which was the uh, the need or the the lack thereof of having a middleman, which is the the miners who are facilitating yeah, the transaction. In this case, with the Toto system, there's no miners. Effectively, 
every node that is in the system, every device, um, has the benefit of being able to own things and being able to transact things. But along with that benefit, there's what I'll call the, the network or the social obligation of needing to do some work to contribute to the overall system. So what every node does is it says, fine, uh, there's a little bit of its capacity or power that's allocated to uh, ensuring that the final settlement and the consensus of all the transactions that are happening kind of around it um, are honest. So what in fact has happened here is the mining function uh, is still happening, but now it's spread across every single node in the network. It's not like you've got a separate group of actors that is doing that. Um, everyone's doing it. Which means that uh, every device is doing a tiny little piece of the mining thing. Uh, so now we've combined wallet and the miner together into one node. And every single time you add a device, you've added a bit of consensus and settlement and mining capacity. Uh, and that's how it's spread out again. So it's a really... Um, elegant uh, and quite beautiful answer in that if you want to have a blockchain that's actually delivering all the performance you want, you've got to decentralize and distribute everything. That means you're decentralizing and distributing the mining function, the files, the ledger, all of it. Okay, so is the future um, uh, the decentralized um, ledger as opposed to the replicated ledger? Yeah, I think the future, I'd call it the, you know, sort of the, the is, is exactly that. Now, that said, there are cases where you actually do want a global ledger, right? Uh, just because you've now, because you've now gone and, the, you know, the ledger is kind of like spread out in all the files and every file has its own audit trail. If someone showed up and said, I want to see all the transactions that have happened. Um, you literally cannot get them because it's inside the system. And only those that own those digital assets or are transacting with them can see what they need to see. That then means if you've got uses as an example, let's say that are related to, you know, as an example, uh, certain types of central bank uh, or financial institutional transactions. Uh, where you need to have an audit trail. Uh, or as an example, there there's voting or other kinds of collective action happening where you need to be able to do like a universal audit of everything. Uh, in those particular cases, you're going to need an efficient uh, you know global ledger. Um, so I don't think there's one blockchain that solves everything for everyone. Uh, in this case, uh, Toda, I believe, is a wonderful protocol that will actually have global implications and what it can do. Um, but if you look and say, are you still going to need global ledgers? Yes, you are for specific circumstances. There, I think there's other solutions that are very compelling. Um, you know, Algorand uh, that was created by Dr. Silvio Micali uh, is one uh, in terms of creating an efficient uh, public ledger. Uh, so, yeah, uh, you're still going to need those kind of things. So um, one thought occurs to me that if every node only holds their own um, data, 
uh, and the node being, let's say, my cell phone. Um, what happens if my cell phone is lost, destroyed, or whatever? Is there any way to yes, recover so that? This is there's this kind of few answers to this, right? The most basic answer is now that um, what you own is actually being held locally uh, on your device. If you lose it or should something happen, that's it, right? Now what we say is, okay, fine, what are we going to do about that? Because, you know, that's pretty risky. Um, so then at that point, there's all kinds of other solutions you can do. So with Toe2Q, with our marketplace, a business or a consumer will be able to opt in and say, hey, Toe2Q, we want to make sure that um, what we own and manage is securely backed up on the cloud, right? And we'll say, okay, fine, if that's what you want, here's a service, we'll do that for you. Um, or a business owner could decide we're going to do our own solution or we're going to use another third party, right? So there's a number of ways around what you've described, which is a real challenge, right? That's a real risk. All right. Um, many companies are you are issuing utility tokens as opposed to, I suppose, currency uh, tokens. Can you explain the difference and why companies would go that route? And I think an example other than yours is a company that I've read about called Dent Wireless. They have an interesting uh, business model whereby you can send your unused monthly mobile data plan to uh, someone else or even sell it and, and, and in exchange for, for their, uh, their token. Uh, utility token. So can yeah, you explain sure. that a bit? Um, and I'm not familiar with that particular example. Um, so I won't comment on that as much because um, I think to do them justice, um, there's a lot of different ways to configure technology uh, and how you're going to use it. And I don't want to misspeak, not knowing enough facts about what they're doing and why and how and all of that. But looking at utility tokens specifically, there's, you know, there's a regulatory thing, right? Because when tokens were first created uh, and investors were buying in, uh, what happened is the securities regulator showed up and said, well, that thing that you're investing in or buying, that's a security. Uh, and there's a bunch of requirements now that we're looking at it as an investment security in terms of what you need to do as far as reporting and compliance and who the investors are. Uh, and the second it becomes a security that also limits its utility or usefulness uh, in a commercial setting as a medium of exchange for any kind of good or service. So then what ended up happening is, you know, a lot of different businesses uh, and different blockchain groups, uh, because of that issue, then tried to come up with, as an example, ICOs or other structures uh, that would allow their token to maintain its utility status. Uh, so that it would be useful. Um, there's been a number of very, very interesting things attempted uh, over the last years uh, and other things that are evolving. Um, I think the risk uh, with a lot of those is really on the regulatory side because you could create something and have investors buy into it and you're using it in a certain way. But the question then is, what assurance do you have that when the regulator catches up and whether it is next month, next year, or 10 years from now, um, they decide on the status of that thing based on how you created it, how you distributed it, and how you're using it, um, that then adversely impacts uh, your business. So out of that, I've seen kind of good solutions and not good solutions, right? 
but it's definitely one that when you think about a utility token or a digital asset um, that has been built for utility purposes, it's really important to be very, very careful uh, about that uh, in the eyes of the regulator. And when I talk about the regulator, I'm talking about securities, uh, monetary authorities, uh, as well as the uh, tax authority in whatever jurisdiction applies. So speaking uh, of regulators, uh, you know, in the, the last few months when I've doing, been doing research on blockchain technology, cryptocurrencies, uh, I have to say it, it really looks like the Wild West to me right now. Um, there's few rules, lots of problems. Uh, people are, some people are losing their money. There's a lack of trust in many of the uh, exchanges. Uh, are, are these just growing pains or is it a combination of growing pains and also because the industry is unregulated that people are trying to get away with yeah, just I think about you've anything. got a lot of everything going on. Um, I'd say that, yeah, it's growing pains. Uh, and some of those growing pains might look, you know, catastrophic or apocalyptic because something goes wrong. And whether it's for one month or three months or at an entire country or region level, right, you, you get these vibrations. Um, but overall, to me, that's still a growing pain. Um, we have... Uh, I believe too many bad actors and things like scams and other stuff that have gone on. Um, I think it's good that what is happening now, both across regulators uh, and within the industry, you're seeing more uh, and more smart organizations and awareness and understanding about what's going on. Um, and you're starting to see regulators um, pick up speed, get smart and start to cooperate, right? So as an example, the SEC last summer, around July period, uh, came out and said, you know what, uh, these things look like they could be securities, right? Uh, and since then, there was kind of a signal, right? It was the, you know, when the party's happening uh, and everyone's going wild, uh, and then suddenly someone starts flicking the lights or, you know, doing that kind of thing or bringing the light um, uh, amplitude up at around 2 or 3 a.m. or whatever time to say, you know what, the party is going to end and we're, we're going into a new phase. Um, that's how I saw that July period. Uh, and since then, what we've seen is more and more regulators start to take action uh, and start to talk to each other uh, in terms of looking at how to regulate the environment. Uh, and we saw some very interesting things over the last months. Like as an example, there were some regulators where the country and overall was actually very forward on blockchain and digital currencies, but they immediately took a hardline stance in order to create some cleanup uh, and then now are you know, kind of moving in a very progressive direction, right? I mean, we could look at uh, South Korea uh, as an example of that. So seeing all of that happen on the regulatory end, um, I think is a very positive thing uh, and good for the industry overall. Um, the one thing that businesses want when they look at regulation is certainty, right? So that even for us as TOTA-Q and looking at the markets we're going into, um, we want to know that uh, a country and a regulator has you know, gotten to a certain level of definition on how they see it and that they're going to stick to a particular position. Because then we can make business and investment decisions off of that. Uh, it's when there's ambiguity on that side where it gets kind of tough. Uh, the same way where now if we look at a lot of the altcoins um, that kind of exploded, I think from the ones last year, um, a good number of those have already failed. 
Uh, and you're right because it's upsetting. It's kind of right at the moment where all kinds of people started jumping in, uh, and you saw, uh, you know, uh, people taking out mortgage debt and credit card debt to go and invest in these things. Uh, and then consequently, you then saw some of the banks like the Canadian banks react, uh, by shutting down, uh, credit card use for investment in these sort of things and, you know, other kinds of things, because, it increased their exposure, right, uh, and the risk on their books. So, yeah, having you know a lot of these things, I think overall that more regulation uh, and yet having the regulators get smarter is a good thing. And most countries I've seen that are the most forward in it are very uh, pragmatic about it uh, and overall are moving in a commercially forward direction. And I think that's very positive. All right. So uh, I just have a few more questions. Um, with respect to the space sector, what uses do you see for, for blockchain technology? Um, wow, that's a good question uh, because I think you know there's a ton. Um, <laughs> I thought it was very interesting that you know when you're talking about the, the, the last sponsor back there uh, and in terms of just the theme on where are we going in terms of we are going to space, I kind of look at old space and that was where – Space produced all kinds of technologies that had all sorts of spin-offs in real industry, right? Um, but now what we're actually seeing is a start of the reversal uh, where real industry is going to end up going into space and vice versa, right? Uh, so it's become much more uh, ubiquitous. So I can think of, you know, I'll just kind of give a couple of examples that from the space side, if you think of any business which is really around the collection of data uh, from sensors, and having that data be monetized and the insights off of it, um, all of that data can be put onto efficient blockchains uh, and have one or two-way atomic transactions that allow for very efficient um, origination and generation of digital assets uh, and the transaction in those things. Um, so I think that you know, blockchain is a very uh, important part of how new space and space 2.0 is going to develop. Uh, or even on the other side, when we look at not just digital assets and information, but real assets. So one of the things we're doing on our end is one of the issues that's going to become increasingly important as we go out into space and, you know, we end up having more moon exploration, uh, habitation. Uh, we think of, you know, mining asteroids and all that. How do we look at, you know, ownership and registration uh, of all of this, these kind of assets and the protection of those things, including the what I'll call the space heritage sites um, that are actually important for, you know, our own history and civilization and, you know, sense of, you know, identity. Um, so we've been looking at a number of projects in terms of even from a, uh, a non, uh, you know, sort of private business end of saying, how do you you know, sort of capture all those assets uh, and protect them. Uh, so, you know, there's a couple, I gave a couple of early stage examples, um, but I actually do believe the uh, the sky is not the limit uh, in this case. Um, I'm probably describing two examples out of a thousand you could name. All right. So I'm curious, there, there's several companies out there that are trying to put blockchains on satellites. Uh, there's Blockstream Satellite, which I think actually just recently did that with the Galaxy 18 satellite. I'm not sure about, 
yeah, the Galaxy 18 satellite. There's other companies. There's a Chinese one called Space Chain. Uh, there's Nexus Earth, which is uh, going to do something with vector space systems. Uh, is there a there there for putting blockchain on satellites? Um, yes, uh, and it, it really goes back to, you know, what is the there's a few things. What is the data that the satellite is capturing or communicating, right? Uh, and is there a business case uh, in terms of looking at that data and saying that um, there's benefit uh, in having the the holding and the communicating of that data be put on the blockchain, right? Are there you know issues of auditability or are we trying to get more efficiency out of the system, right? Or do we want to have assuredness in that, you know, as data is transacted back and forth, um, that, you know, what, what's being passed is reliable or that it, it's kind of honest, all those kind of things. Um, so, you know, I think the general answer is yes. Um, we're in the very early stages. So we're seeing a lot of different uh, experiments and business models uh, and where to do it. Um, within space, what is it going to look like or have we seen the... You know, like a one blockchain to rule them all or a particular type of use. I, I think it's way too early for that. So a couple of weeks ago, there was an article in Forbes that uh, stated that uh, almost half of the initial uh, coin offerings last year failed. Um, what does that say about the marketplace? And, and, and as you mentioned before, the regulators uh, you know, is it time to to make sure that these ICOs are, are are fully regulated so that we don't see something like that happen again? Because that's a lot of money yeah, that I was mean, lost. The the regulation and the maturing of that market uh, is going to happen. Uh, I think it's going to happen faster than we think, um, but it's going to be messy, right, along the way. So uh, yes, it's time and it, it, it's happening. Um, I definitely think that within that market like right now uh it's definitely you know sort of caveat emptor uh in that you know i talk to a lot of people who are interested uh in investing in the market um and i'll never tell anyone you know to invest or not to invest but what i will tell them is uh, understand what you're investing in right uh and have have and keep a cool head um because a lot of, I think, unfortunately, too much of what we see uh, is people that are going in to invest in something simply because their friend or someone they knew or another mass of people are doing it too. So my last question is, what's coming up with Toto Q? Uh, this is a really, really exciting 100 days for us. Um, what you're going to see with Toto Q, which I believe is... Um, uh, has got all of us super pumped, uh, and the entire team, uh, the co-founders of the TOTA protocol, Tufi and Dan, um, is that uh, this spring we'll be launching the first commercial pilot markets where for the first time in the world you're going to see completely decentralized, um, mobile phones only, commercial transactions for goods and, goods and services happening on a blockchain. Um, and that kind of last mile utility uh, has yet to be solved at scale. Um, and, you know, in some cases, some have done the forecast that that is still years away. Uh, it's not years away. Um, it's starting this spring. Uh, so that's the first thing that we're very proud of. Um, I think the other is that 
we've always taken a global view of where we're going with Chota-Q, uh, and it's really around providing that financial access to the 80% of the population that is what I'd call financially underserved, uh, including those merchants. So while we're launching a number of pilots in Canada, um, we also are looking at uh, Europe, the Middle East, Africa, uh, Korea, and Australia. So starting in 2018, we've got about six, seven countries where we're rolling out a number of commercial uh, and industrial pilots uh, with real utility. Um, and you know, we made the approach and have been you know, sort of very quiet for the last two years while we were building, is we wanted to avoid you know, producing a white paper uh, and having a bunch of PR and an announcement and a set of promises. Um, everyone's kind of very practical and kind of results on the ground. And we'd rather just build it and have everyone show up and say, oh, wow, that is actually working. And the answer is yes, uh, it's actually working and the time is now. Um, there's a number of other uh, exciting things happening, but I'd say if I was to pick one uh, of what's going on with us, uh, that's it. Now you're self-funded, right? So we self-funded our, our, ourselves for a long time, uh, continue to do so. We started bringing in the first external investments uh, and we closed a seed round um, of uh, just around two million. Uh, that was back in January. Uh, we didn't really go to what I'll call the crypto investment universe. Uh, we went actually to the real economy. Uh, and this was to business builders uh, and business owners in a number of diversified industrial and commercial areas that include medicine, um, infrastructure, uh, education, uh, high tech, uh, et cetera. Uh, and with each of those partners, what ended up happening is apart from the marketplace we're building, uh, we identified where there was value uh, in rolling the blockchain and the marketplace into their own commercial or industrial um, operations. Um, so that was sort of the first round. And now what we're doing is we're going through some other uh, financing rounds, uh, you know, kind of looking ahead. And we'll be making some announcements uh, about that uh, in the coming months. Will you be doing a ICO and or IPO? So we will not be doing uh, an ICO. Uh, what we do have is the TOTA note, which let's call it the first digital asset, which will be in the TOTA Q marketplace inventory. Um, there's an immutable supply uh, of 125 billion asset-backed notes uh, and no more. Uh, and those are algorithmically earned by merchants and consumers that are actually doing real trade in the marketplace. Uh, so as soon as they end up becoming a node and start doing market building activities, um, everyone can earn uh, a bit of that currency by actually doing work, uh, which is great because it also helps sort of monetize more economic development uh, and more trade. So for that currency, um, it's actually asset backed. Uh, so we have a set of investors that are coming in to really just provide a backstop, a uh, temporary backstop uh, underneath the node. So that any merchant or consumer who's using it knows that you know no matter what the value is on the exchange, um, there's a floor value to it, uh, which helps de-risk things. Uh, long term, there's actually going to be a permanent asset reserve of hard assets, uh, metals, land, commodities, uh, things that don't depreciate. And uh, we also felt that that was extremely important so that when you've got a 
what I'll call a utility-based currency or note in the market um, that people look uh, and can go and audit it and have full transparency. Uh, but they know that there's a set of, uh, of hard assets underneath that, uh, and it's an actual basket. All right. I think we could talk for a few more hours, but we'll save it for another podcast. I'd like to get you back on the show at some point because I think blockchain technology is is definitely something that uh, we'll be uh, uh, discussing as uh, the years go forward here. And uh, so I hope we can get you back on the show sometime. Thank you so much, Mark. And I'd also give the invite that as we're rolling out in the spring and summer, uh, particularly with the space-related projects, um, I uh, would love to invite you out uh, and have you actually come and see uh, blockchain and decentralized uh, blockchain uh, at work with uh, Toad Cube. Great. I'll certainly be up for that and definitely write something about that. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash we really appreciate feedback, and to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca, or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca, where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.